The Hell on Wheels Garage Build Podcast is recorded live in the Law Friend Studios. The law offices of Fran Hosh, Palm Harbor, Florida, personal injury attorneys. Call 1-866-LAW-FRAN. That's 1-866-LAW-FRAN. Serving the Tampa Bay biker community for over 20 years. Over the last five decades, the Arlen Ness Motorcycle Company has developed and manufactured some of the most innovative parts and mind-bending custom motorcycles in the industry. Today, three generations and over 50 years later, those traditions stand tall. From the new 10-gauge engine cover series to their classic line of big sucker performance air cleaners, Arlen Ness delivers functional performance for your Harley-Davidson or Indian V-Twin. Go to ArlenNess.com and use discount code GARAGEBUILT10 to save 10% and get free shipping in the continental U.S. on orders over $100. You're a craftsman, so you spend a little bit extra for tools made in the USA and guaranteed for life. Why should your workwear be any different? Let's face it, you work in some tough situations. You need tough workwear that works with you, not against you. 1620 Workwear builds the toughest, most comfortable workwear right here in the USA. The science is in the fabric, from fit and finish to comfort. 1620 Workwear has a fit for almost any environment, no matter your trade. 1620 Workwear is ready to go to work right away and needs no break-in period. It's also guaranteed for life. Visit www.1620usa.com or follow on Instagram at 1620USA. 1620 Workwear, American-made and guaranteed for life. Badlands Lighting Modules has brought American-made products and values to your garage for over 30 years with the best products and best warranty available in the industry. And since 1999, NAMS Custom Cycle Products has created American-made wiring solutions for builders and bikers alike. Today, Electric Lighting Company Products offers the best in aftermarket lighting for your Harley-Davidson Indian or custom-built motorcycle, period. Visit your local Electric Lighting dealer or electriclighting.com. That's electric, L-E-T-R-I-C, lighting.com. Hello, Garage Build Podcast listeners. I'd like to talk to you today about a product that I use every single day and I'm proud to be associated with. It's a company called Fix Your Lid, and they make grooming products that are available at all Target stores or online at Target.com. Here's what you need to know about Fix Your Lid. Their most important claim is that they source every one of their raw materials in the United States down to the boxes they arrive in. Basically, if it's made in another country, they will refuse it, even if that means spending significantly more money to do so. I use their shampoo and their pomade, but they also make conditioners and hair gels, and most of their products are available in trial sizes or travel sizes, whichever you choose, and they're not going to break the bank. Again, these are made in the United States of America all the way down to the raw materials and even the raw materials to make their packaging. So go to Target.com or follow Fix Your Lid on Instagram at Fix Your Lid and get yourself some high-quality grooming products made in the good old U.S. of A. today. Hello and welcome back to the Helen Wheels Garage Build Podcast. I am your host, Jason Hallman. Thank you for joining me. Today's episode number 44 with Chris Moose from Moosecraft in Denton, Texas. Chris Moose is one of the uh, 
geniuses behind the brand Misfit Industries. And unfortunately, that brand is no longer with us, and we get into that a little bit here in this conversation. He is also an invited builder for the Central Florida Wheels of Steel Indoor Custom Motorcycle Show this December 5th and 6th in Lakeland, Florida at the RP Funding Center. It's a fantastic indoor venue. There's going to be 15 total builders, lots of vendors, lots of industry folks around here. And the show MC is none other than my good friend, Jeff G. Holt, the V-Twin visionary himself. Go to cfwheelsofsteel.com and get yourself some pre-sale tickets. You're going to save $2 when you pre-purchase your tickets. They're $12 at the door, $10 ahead of the show. If you're interested in being a vendor or sponsor, there's information there on the link. Follow us at CF Wheels of Steel Show on Instagram. And uh, it's for a good cause. We've got lots and lots of people invested and lots and lots of people coming. It is presented by GEICO. It benefits the Early Learning Coalition of Polk County in Florida. And I hope you can join us. Also, please remember to visit our sponsors and use our discount codes. It helps make sure that this podcast stays relevant and at the front lines, and it also saves you some money. Uh, just for instance, 1620 USA, the American-made clothing line for working men and women. You save 20% when you use our discount code. So go to the Instagram page, Garage Built Podcast, and look it up. See what kind of discount codes we have. Save yourself some money. And once again, I thank you for joining me. This is a great episode. I was really um, excited to sit down and talk to Chris. He's very articulate, and uh, you can tell he's a very high-order thinker. So I look forward to seeing what he is building now and see what he builds in the future. tabletop mic with an isolator uh, tabletop mic stand with an isolator right and i thought this table would be much more rigid than what it is and it's, it's just not so a little bit of flexibility there yeah so your levels sound decent there too yeah and i'll stay close i'll stay yeah and i mean, six, I mean you can yeah move it away they they say like i'll a make sure to better, follow right? it follow follow my body <laughs> with the microphone absolutely cheers cheers man thank you for doing Good this see you. no thank you for having me so um I guess we'll start with uh, Chris Moose from Moosecraft, right? Yes, sir. So you did um, uh, you did several different. I came to know you through obviously, actually, your time at Misfit. Ironically enough, I think most people probably that would have been their the entire industry's first exposure where they could all say they definitely saw that. Even if they knew about you beforehand, that was they definitely you left your stamp on on that organization when it was. I mean, from I know that there were some some problems inside it, and it had a tumultuous ending. But and I don't know if you can talk on any of that. But they built a good product when they were building product, and they it seemed like it anyway. Well, I used some of their stuff. Thank you. That's my product. Yeah. So you did all the design work, did you not? <laughs> yeah, hundred percent. One of the things that was uh, really integral to the company's development was about the fact that 
We wanted to go from being able to buy parts in order to satisfy our customers to have our own parts in a greater form that allowed us to have greater efficiency. Okay. And <clears throat> for me, like I stumbled into motorcycles. It didn't, it wasn't like, I'm going to go build bikes. That sounds right. amazing. 2013-ish. Uh, it was actually late 2012, 2013. Um, Chris had moved across the street from us. I was working on like a half million dollar Camaro at the time for SEMA. Ridiculous project. And he had a lathe. He had a mill. He right. had a doing bender. We didn't have any of that shit. And I was just like, uh, you're my friend now. Right, yeah. We, what can do I do we just for become you? best friends? What can I do for you that you could do for me, et cetera? And, That's a healthy you know, way to start a business relationship. Uh, I mean, in my opinion. It just, just mutual respect for each other. Yeah, as qualifications like, and tool ability <clears throat> and those things. Yeah, and I mean, I have capabilities and um, things that I was able to do that he wasn't. And right. I, I generally respected the initial part of a relationship where he needed help doing sheet metal shaving, some geometry, some CAD work, that kind of stuff. He didn't really exactly know what was going on. He was trying to build a layframe 26 bike at the time. And it was a uh, King's ransom. Okay. So that bike got painted. Uh, I believe Jace painted that bike. <clears throat> and so either Chris spelled it wrong or Jace spelled it wrong. I don't care who did it. <laughs> <laughs> I think, I think honestly it was Chris. And it said King's Ransom. R-A-N-D-S-O-M. Okay. Yeah, and the paint job was done. So... And the bike's getting assembled. That yeah. bike is what bike? Like it was, it was a lay frame, 26, white bike, full extended bags, touched the ground when you aired it all the way out kind of stuff. Okay. Um, one of the first bikes to be that way. It was 2012, Galveston. <clears throat> Made a big deal for Chris when he came up. He had uh, escaped whatever hell he had created in Houston to get up to Dallas. Uh, I was asked to help with that move, and I didn't even know who he was. Right. Mike Coy, a uh, painter that was working with me at the time at Mitch Anderson Designs, uh, was friends with him, and they helped him move his stuff in and all kinds of stuff. Um, actually, no, I take that back. He moved up to work with uh, Pickard, with Javon, okay. Javon Lau. <clears throat> okay, yeah. so I had heard that there was Correct. some sort of there was it went a, from a transitional Houston, it kind went of piece. from Houston to Plano to Plano to Plano, and then we ended up in Addison. So Okay. Houston to Plano was Chris leaving his situation, moved into um, some operations over with Javon. There was a not accurate description of relationship there. It fell apart, et cetera. Then he left that to come over to be in the space that was across from us. And that's right. how I met him. Um, he needed help doing sheet metal and some odds and ends, and I was willing to pitch in. I mean, if dudes let me use his mill and lathe and everything, so I'm like, yeah, cool, whatever. Um we did some work with that, and then were his tools all manual at this time? Oh yeah, I mean these are these are not NC machines and five access lathes and mills and things, right? There's these are pieces that are this is a this is a true we never owned equipment like that, really, never. Okay. And so <clears throat> the irony is is that I always had a Inco piece of shit fucking mill that had terrible in play in it. I had a lathe that had been dropped two or three times by transporters that I had to rebuild the gearbox in and make shims in order to offset the freaking drive so that I could <laughs> cut threads and do all kinds of stuff. There was never any investment in the tools and equipment in the fabrication department. What about in the production side of things? Were you guys producing part? I mean, I know I'm getting a little far ahead. But no, no, we can skip all over the place. Well, you were uh, when you were in production, those parts were being made here, most of them, some of them? 
Uh, the majority of our parts were being made in the United States. We are we champion the idea that we just wanted to be American-made product, and we wanted to try to make it in the United States. I'm super proud to be here. I'm blessed to have the veterans and first responders that like support us and create right. this freedoms for us to do these things. So it's like you know, how can I not honor my country and the people that support it? Sure. So <clears throat> there are certain things that we did make overseas. Fenders, I know. Yep, we I actually well, had a box that said "Made in U.S. Misfit Made in the USA," and then it said "Made in Taiwan or China." Or something. Right. It so was I mean, irony. But of I mean, that. That, well, there's a legalese there. So, like, if, if something is manufactured overseas, you have to label it. If sure. you do not, that's federal yeah. law. So, um, we did manufacture our fenders originally in the United States. They were being made in California by a company that had done a bunch of chopper stuff in the back in the day. Sure. Everybody was like, "Oh, that's the guy. You use them, etc." And we're like, over the phone through conversation. Um, so to go a little bit backward, uh, we never had equipment. Okay. Um, I personally own probably a quarter million dollars of equipment and it's because of my desire to just be better at what I do. Sure. And knowing there's deficiencies in my ability to create certain products, I needed certain things in order to make my job more efficient. And I had shown uh, cost analysis and benefit, et cetera, stuff like that to, uh, the company to, try to proposition them to buy certain pieces of equipment that would allow us to be more efficient, be able to prototype in-house, et cetera. Um, I'm just really efficient at drawing things in the computer, and I have machine shops that I utilize that can help me with that, and I do 3D printing and all kinds of stuff. So okay. I literally bought a $40,000 3D printer, a $35,000 CNC plasma, uh, press break, freaking all kinds of stuff, you know, in order to facilitate my fabrication prototype needs. Right. <clears throat> I, um, <clears throat> excuse me. I um, work with a company out of California that was referred to us through a mutual friend, um, Chris Abrero, that owns a portion of Arc Audio. Okay. Uh, he had a company that was machining boat tower speaker housings and stuff like that. We were building the bike on Discovery Channel. Okay. Let me preface all of this with the fact that I did not have anything to do with motorcycles until 2013. <laughs> really? I was building a bike on Discovery Channel in 2014. I didn't really ride a motorcycle or own one until 2015 and already had patents on product in the industry. So it was one of those things that was like math is math. And that's my thing. Sure. Uh, math is absolute and uh, it doesn't lie. And one of the things that I was really focused on was trying to execute product because, and, and Chris was too. We had two customers of his, Canadian based that <clears throat> built a couple of bikes a year and had interest in what they could do to make it more efficient for them to build more bikes for themselves and their friends, et cetera. The transference of those products across the Canadian border, make it more complicated, all those kind of things. And so they were like, I know that that can be problematic with yeah, customs and duties time. and tariffs Big and time. stuff, which is really kind of a sad thing when you have a neighbor that's, it's like, you know, not that's, being able to lay, lend your neighbor an egg. Let's do business together. Neighbor. Yeah, exactly. And then we as a team grow better. Sure. Right. So <clears throat> that was something that where they came to him, not me, they came to him, and I'd already started to generally do some work for him. And they said, let's um, let's explore what this means, you know, to, to, to do business at sure. the time. And this was before any kind of like development of what it is that we're going to do. And um, they asked me what it would take to keep me. Like, let's not get rid of this guy. Let's make sure he sticks around. We had a sure. conversation. There was an agreement. It never got met, whatever that was. 
Sure. We won't go into those details, but um, I had an amazing opportunity. I'm super blessed to have had the opportunity to be behind or a part of a company that had an incredible revenue put into it so that I could do amazing things and without some limits sometimes. Right. Um, <clears throat> the big problem I saw when I was asked to be a part of the company was I was like, um, hey, I'm building this bike or whatever. It's like, oh, wh where's the fender? Oh, man, man, it's like four weeks out. Cool, where's the wheel? Ah, six weeks from now. Cool, uh, where's the rear body set? Ah, two weeks from now. Uh, where's the gas cap? Uh, I mean, I think we'll get it next week. Like, all these dumb little things. And I said, okay, so we built this product, you know, the short neck system. Sure, I was going to, I wanted to touch on that because the, <clears throat> was was that your uh, brainchild or was that, had, had the, because hog halters offered, or one of the, either hog halters or American suspension offered a, a short neck, but I don't know correct who you. developed it. Yeah. Yeah. Who, so who developed that? When I came to do some work at first for Chris as Misfit Baggers, the request was, hey, man, I got this uh, neck on this bike. We have this uh, road glide. We're going to cut the neck and weld it and do this thing. Really neat paint job on this bike. And uh, he said, well, we're going we're gonna to do it like this. And it's like, well, how and why do you do it like that? Because I'm big into math. Like, i got to know why. There's absolutes. I have to know why. And uh, I come from um, a really vast group of suspension, technology, hot rod racing, off-road racing, rock crawling, all kinds of stuff. And so I said, why, why does this exist this way? Because I understand caster, trail. Same thing. Right. Um, and I said, so why do we do this this way? I don't know, Moose. That's just what we do. He's like, it goes up this far. It goes this far out. It's this angle. Yeah, whatever. That's, that's easy math. I can put it where you want. I build it out. Guy goes to it. He's like 5'8". Road glide. 30-inch wheel. Can't see over the front end. Bitching. Yeah. Feels like shit. Super heavy. And so looking at that coming from like, and Curtis will say the same thing he knows where i come from mini trucks full-size trucks you know like okay. i had a bag dually on 19s and all that shit in 2000 so i was like i know what it takes to put a really big wheel inside of a vehicle and move all this stuff to make it efficient so like what is in the way of making this wheel actuate via suspension full travel like normally you lay a truck out and you're like to make sure that when it airs out you're not grinding into your fender wells, your sure. fuse box and all yeah, these things. because it can happen sure, yeah, at any time. Turning radius at a certain height and all that stuff. You want to make sure it's, like, safe for the customer. So, for me, as far as a motorcycle is concerned, I said, okay, so, like, full gutted suspension, nothing inside it, collapsible, you know, telescopic front end. I want to make sure it doesn't collide with this and that we have some ability to put this together where it has factory. What I became to know at that point was trail. And did the research on myself, and I said, okay, so, like, it makes sense that this should exist here, but, I mean, like, how, like, what is, what's the good trail for this bike and this wheel and all this shit? And I was like, wait, fuck, factory trail's this. So, why can't it be factory trail? So, I did a little bit of work to investigate, like, how it is that you, like, what are triple trees and how are triple trees made and, you know, what, is the off, what does offset mean and all that stuff. Like, I didn't know any of that, and I just started to explore what that investigation was. Thank God for the internet. I mean, otherwise. Right, yeah. So <clears throat> with a lot of exploration, I was like, okay, so this makes sense. I know that the frame sits at this height. 
I think the bike needs to be level. That was my thought. Yeah, I agree with that. And then the wheel needs to exist here in space. If I have a telescopic front end and the suspension is fully compressed, I want to make sure that the fender with the appropriate offset doesn't make collision with the down tubes. It's a physical interference. I want to make sure that doesn't happen. Right. What else is in the way? Um, well, the neck was in the fucking way. And so I came to Chris and I said, hey, um, man, there's, you know, I think there's a better way to do this. I think maybe if we like maybe make the neck shorter, that there's a solution there. And he says, oh, no, Moose, people already do that. It's called, I said, fuck you, don't tell me. Before he ever said it, I was like, I don't care if somebody makes a product. I'm asking you, should we and could we do this? And he goes, I mean, it makes sense, yeah, but I mean, we could just buy something next time maybe. And I was like, okay, fine. Conversation over. No more conversation. So I went ahead and I drew up the neck length based on available space with clearance if triple trees were made a certain way that allowed the wheel to exist in that space, fully collapsed suspension, not because I was thinking about air ride or any of that shit. It would just like, you're thinking if you hit a range hit a bump and the shit compresses, like what is it going to hit? And so I wanted to make sure there's zero physical interference whatsoever on the mechanical side. And I came to him and I said, okay, so the neck needs to be this long. If we shorten the neck by this much, it makes sense that we have a standard one inch diameter stem Mm -hmm. that we probably should increase the lower diameter, increase the lower bearing race in order to absorb some of that torsional load that's at the lower end of the neck. I said, and um, I think if we cut it right here, it'll make really good fucking sense. Only because there's holes in the frame that don't change. At the time, I was really very naive and I'm looking at only the 2008 or uh, 2009 newer chassis. Okay. Like there's these two holes that this bracket bolts into. And I didn't right. know what it was like, Oh, the road glide. Yeah. The road glide bracket holes. It's like, so those bolts are kind of a given. There's a little bit of play in them. They're not always perfect, but they're pretty close. Yeah. But the, so you're talking about pick the pickup points from that. And I'm, yep. I'm not using engineering terms, but that's what I would call yeah, it. I'm like, I'm trying point. to align off of this location. So gotcha. I was like, if I make a template, I can always cut it in the same place. Right. And so I, uh, I used to work with a company where we did um, nuclear, biological, chemical fallout shelters and shit. Like okay. I used to engineer those and, and build that. And that uh, a third party used to do a lot of laser cutting for me and stuff. So I had a great relationship with them. And I went to them and I said, you know, I need to get some templates made. I need to get, um, I, I looked at the factory frame and I cut a neck off at the location I assumed like made sense. I didn't want to fuck the gas tank mount. I wanted to make sure it was kind of in a place that made sense. Yeah. <clears throat> and kind of drew it up in the computer and I was like, okay, so this lower channel is made out of technically three sixteenths offset geometry plate. The inside member is this thick. Let's make it out of 12 gauge because I need to have this similar thickness to the factory frame. And then I need to have an insert block and let's go ahead and make that bump into the gas tank mount. So you can't cut it too far, all this kind of shit. And I was like, this seems like some fail safe type information. I can like the dumbest room, the dumbest person in the room can install. Sure. <clears throat> and so I proposed that and Chris was kind of on board and he's like, yeah, I mean, let's go ahead and, and like make a couple of sets of uh, parts. And so we didn't like have a full piece made. I had like a lower channel broke at a, like eight foot length and I could just saw it into the dimensions that I needed to and stuff. So that created the lower housing. I made upper pieces, but channel by so many, so much depth in order to create my profile, I hand cut all that shit and milled it in the mill. And then I made the reinforcement block by hand 
you know, all that kind of stuff. And then I eventually drew it all in computer and I said, okay, this is the laser cut profiles with like rosette welds that reinforce all sure. the components and you layer yeah. it all up and you weld it like this. It's super strong and we're great. And if it's welded at ISO certified company, you know, we can ensure that there's an integral strength, to all the welds and all this stuff. So we went ahead and moved forward to do the prototype. And that was for Sturgis 2013. Um, there were people as soon as we had come out with that product that I was like personally like a little bit enamored and amazed at the same time like oh Covington's calling it's like oh they've been around for a long time yeah it's really cool they're interested in something I did and I don't even know what the fuck I'm really doing I just know <laughs> that math is math <laughs> and so I remember talking to David and David's on the phone with me he's like man how's it ride I was like I mean it rides great we'd never had one on the road at that point really at all and Chris his eyes across the room was looking at me. And he goes, the fuck, Moose? You can't say shit like that to people. I was like, mm, I think I can. I was like, math is absolute, dude. I know this thing will ride amazing. I'm never in the motorcycle at this point, by the way. <laughs> 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 but there's something to be said about geometry. And I said, man, I said, you won't be disappointed. And so we got a friend of ours bike done. Got a Houston. And um, finally got on the road about a week later. Chris wrote it, and he freaked the fuck out. He's like, dude, it's the nicest handling bike I've ever ridden with a big wheel on it. Because he's ridden, like, I think at that point, a 26 bike. This is a 30-inch bike. First 30-inch short neck bike at that point, non-HHI. Sure. And at that point, I still had, I had the conversation with him. I was like, I do not care and do not want to know what is out there that people are doing because I don't want to be influenced or guided by what somebody walks in a circle and says all day. And he says, I understand that Moose, but there's reasons why we do certain things. It's like, yeah. And the last customer's fucking bike, he hated it and handled like shit. I want to hear your words. So I just used the available information I had with the research I had. And, um, it was, uh, it was a fucking home run for us. Like in a really, really big way. I have to tell you that I, I did, um, I've done, I believe, uh, 11 cut off the neck you know put a put a neck on um i've only done um i think one of the misfits you can come in mark we're just podcasting do you know mark matthews oh mark and i are real okay. good friends i didn't know that or not. and by the way you didn't have to put 20 bucks in there for beer t-bar jesus yeah in right the house he's gonna have to give me some time this week too yeah he does um, he just revamped his bike as well. Yeah. Everybody. Appreciate the kisses. Incorrectly revamped it. What's that? Incorrectly revamped. Okay. Gotcha. Moving those balancers? Yeah, no, I, I heard the story. Yeah. Yeah, so how are your hands? You got carpal tunnel right now? I imagine. Yeah. He needs some. Do not remove the counterbalances in your soft tail people. In an M8. Yeah. In an M8. It's bad news. Um, but I did one, one of the bikes that I did, the bike that I'm, I'm most proud of. Uh, that we did for lots of reasons could, because this customer allowed us to um, kind of work outside the box and the confines of what, you know, what we had. It, it doesn't look like everybody else's bike. And then there's some things that I've done to the bike that I know that um, I'm the only one that know that they're that they're there because it's underneath the skin that uh, I'm, I'm proud of. But we did a misfit neck on a short neck and it was a road glide, like you said. And it, with the road glide bracket and everything that we provided. Yeah. yeah. And it was it was just it was it was uh natural. Um 
I don't know what the, I don't know what the right word would be for in an engineering situation where everything just kind of falls into place how it should. But it felt like uh, when you it was like almost like the whole chassis had been built off of the neck, not the other way around. Right. You know what I'm saying? Yep. So and, in the finished product really, really turned out great. And I was I was really, really bummed when because I don't I didn't know I'm I didn't know the politics of all that. And I was bummed when that, those weren't available anymore. And, uh, you know, now there's so many the bolt on neck thing is something that I'm ardently opposed to because stay of, away from it. Well, I believe in fastener fatigue, and when you put something on there and you're throwing this big 30-inch front wheel on it and you're going lock to lock and you can hear it creak, I was like, look, I won't install one of these. I'll take them off. I've took them off several bikes, but uh, it it was like putting a trailer hitch on a Pinto. It didn't it didn't make any sense, you know. <laughs> how do you, how do you? Um, I I don't know if you're uh, if you do you have an engineering degree. Uh, no, I went to prison when I was 17, and I got out of jail and decided that uh, I was never going back. Um, when I was 16, my dad sold me his Honda Civic, 86 Honda Civic, for a dollar. Because back then, you could get away with that shit and like, right. not pay gift tax. Any tax, yeah. yeah. Now it's like $500 minimum or some shit, right? Right. So, it's an interference engine. Timing belt broke. Valves hit the pistons. Sure. All that kind of shit. I uh, used my very hard-earned money as a 16-year-old to pay to have the cylinder head redone. Best shop in town. Best namesake. All the good old boys go there kind of shit. Right. I let that facility, uh, a little frustrated before I even let the facility, actually. Um, for four weeks, my car sat there and nothing was happening. Found out who was doing the cylinder head work through. Yes, ma'am. You're absolutely okay. <laughs> uh, Pleasure. Okay. <laughs> so I found out who was doing the cylinder head work. I went to that shop, spoke to them. And we were like, oh, we gave them the cylinder head back three weeks ago. Okay. So I went back to the shop. Why is my car not getting worked on kind of thing? I'm not asking for a free ride. I'm paying you full run on everything you want. A couple thousand dollars to get my car fixed. A lot of money for a 16-year-old today. Uh, still, yeah. Yeah. And at the time, I probably could have bought another car for the money I put into it. Sure. But I was trying to disrespect the fact that it was my car and I should fix it, those kind of things. Felt right. Right. And you sign the release. They give you your, you know... It was really weird. They saw you sign a release, like you leave the shop with this, like you sign the receipt. Which receipt has a release on it? The release states that you're responsible for all of the fluids and its temperature and its operation and all this shit. So I leave the facility. I live about 15 miles away. I make it about four miles in the motor grenades, and there's no smoke, no steam, just a bunch of noise. Holes in my freaking block, through my hood. Couldn't figure it out. Open the hood, no smoke, no steam, no nothing. And I'm like, pretty sure oil and water should be fucking everywhere right now. There's no oil or water. They put no oil and no water in my motor, and they said it was my fault that I didn't check it before it left. They wouldn't fix the problem. So at that point, <clears throat> I decided that I would figure out, like, how much do parts cost? What tools do I need to do this job? 
and then migrate from paying somebody to do things to paying myself to buy tools. Yeah, making an investment in the project. Yeah, and like, and I've just I've thought that it would be smart. I was always very mechanically inclined, made things when I was younger, and like my dad's in construction when I was younger and all that stuff, so I love to make stuff. And um, just migrated into that, let's figure it the fuck out. Yeah, fitfo. Yeah, and always have a little bit of money reserved to like find that one buddy you could buy some <laughs> beer or weed or something at a shop and be like, bro, can you come over and help me fix this hub that I fucked up kind of thing? Right. Can I use your press? And then I'm like, fuck, I need a press. You know, right. and it's like tools acquire. And then if, you know, like I am now, 5,000 square feet and freaking quarter million dollars later, I'm fucking like heavy on equipment and tools. But it's like, I think it's super important to freaking like got, get to get to that point, you know? And like I totally forget where we're going in this conversation. Well, no, that, I was asking you. Problem. We, I asked you if you <laughs> but, were if you were uh, a student of engineering. No, and, and, you it, said and that it, you, no, I'm a student of hard fucking knocks. Like, yeah, right. Well, yeah, that's why like, I've got learn. that tattooed on my arm. I didn't go to school. The only thing I got of high school was the fuck out of there. <laughs> yeah, no, right. <laughs> but and, and and I mean, I I I went to prison when I was 17. I actually got arrested within my senior year. I went to prison. I served time. I got out. I was just I had already had the mentality working on cars and stuff like that. I got out actually. I was an electrician for ten years. I mean, I just like. I've, Can you talk about the, that whole whole situation? Is that something you've com- prison? When you go through that, no, not the prison part of it, but <laughs> what led up to that, and was it a, was it a situation of uh, good guy gone bad? Was it a situation of the wrong time? The oh, wrong I'm a place? smart ass. No, I'm a total smart ass, and it's intellectual crime and okay, you know, kind of shit. Like just trying to prove a point, and then got busted for my intellectuality kind of shit. Um, the, the same thing that gets you in and out of problems and solutions today yes right Uh, so where i was going with all of this was i see you as an artist first and so as an artist that is hyper focused on the rule of law and numbers and and those types of things do you find um do you find how do you work through your limitations because obviously everyone has a limitation right and do you find that your art ever suffers from math or that math ever suffers from the art Oh, not at all. I'm real fluid when it comes to that kind of thing. So, like, there's, like, there's absolutes and then there's variables. So, I would say an absolute is machining a part to go inside an engine. It fits. I would say it works, right? Yeah. Uh, and it, you understand thermal dynamics and expansion, heat cycles and expansion. And all that and, shit, yeah. Okay, and Rockwell hardness and uh, those types of things. But those I don't see, change. But I see sheet metal as not a finite numbers game. There's parts of it that are, right? But in order... You have constraints, like anytime you shape sheet metal, and I, that's one of my favorite things to do. I love to shape sheet metal. I mean, you you've seen uh, Element Thirteen, yeah, aluminum bike. So, yep. um, well, I wanted to talk about that bike. We'll because, get there. Yeah. So, um, sheet metal is um, non-absolute unless there are restraints, and so with the restraints that are required based on sheet metal, there's a little bit of limitation in organic development on how those things are achieved and what they look like, kind of thing. But like. A Copa Camaro is a Copa Camaro. You're like, yeah, fucking change that shit. That's the same old, same old, same old. Yeah. There's restrictions, there's templates, there's guides, there's all sure. those kind of things. Well, it's like when they have <clears throat> when they check NASCAR and they yes. take those templates yes, and they set yes, them yes, on yes, there. Yes. So Absolutely. We, so and where I think math where I where I can't uh, function at the level that you're able to function at for like sheet metal in that is that I can make a part. Repeating that part is tough <clears throat> and matching it uh, to the other side is tough as well. So left yeah. side of the tank, right side of the tank. Symmetry's right? a bitch. Symmetry. That's yeah. what I'm looking Symmetry's for. Symmetry's a bitch. And one of the things too. What up, too, Hammer? How you doing? 
<laughs> so, um, you know, one of the things about geometry, symmetry, when it comes to sheet metal is like, can you actually see it at the same time? That's an important thing. I never thought can, about that. Can, can you witness its example by pure geometric representative instance at the same time? So do they, how well do they need to exist within the same parameters? Like, that's a big deal. So <clears throat> when uh, building a particular motorcycle, Element 13, I'll go back to that. We'll, yeah, we'll, let's we'll, unpack we'll, that bike because that's we'll the purple framed yeah. bike, right? Yes. And that that's the bike that when I wasn't sure the Ransom bike... I'll have to go back and look and see. I'm sure I've seen it. I didn't. I didn't do a lot of work on that bike. I just advised. But the bike that I attribute to, that I most align with Misfit, and when I think of what I know of your tenure there, that's the bike that I think about. Right? It's, it's literally my favorite. Um, no, I got a like delicate balance between Dana Hallberg's bike and. Um, so the goat and then element thirteen are probably my two favorite projects okay. to date. Yeah, um, element thirteen, uh, we built it in two and a half weeks. Really, and there are a lot of people in the industry that saw that happen on Discovery Channel, and they're like, "There ain't no fucking way that bike was built in two and a half weeks." I'm like, cool, come live in my space. I didn't sleep. So I know what it's like. Are you are you also a welder? Oh, much. Okay, so. I'm 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 just trying to put all these pieces together because even though you and I have known about each other for a significant amount of time, we've not really had a chance to do this. So yeah, we don't really know each other. We just no, right? We just yeah. know of each other, and right. one of my best friends is somebody that you're close with. So Cody. you know what I mean, Cody. Yeah, yeah. Cody's so, amazing. One of one of what I consider one of my best friends in recent history. Yes. Yeah, he's uh he's he's definitely you know I mean like he's one of my five guys. So, but uh, and he has a tremendous amount of respect for you away from motorcycles and also with motorcycles because we have the conversation all the time. Like that's a guy that has a lot of ideas going on upstairs and doesn't have the, I think the word you used earlier was fluidity. Mm. Doesn't have the ability to kind of transfer, get, he doesn't have that outlet always. Right. So, but so you, you, you're a proficient TIG welder. I mean, is there, is there any metals that you haven't worked with? Uh, I mean, I've welded acelloy, titanium. Okay. Freaking stainless, mild steel, uh, various grades of steel, you know, various grades of aluminum, et cetera. Okay. But yeah, I mean, and I mean, I've, at different processes too. I mean, so like building bomb shelters in the past um, is real important. We used to do, uh, we've worked with a company that was developing a special spiral cord, spiral cord wound solid wire. Okay. So we were doing a spray arc operation using a .063 wire, so 16th inch MIG wire, technically, Okay. and a spray arc operation. So do you know what the difference between dip arc and spray arc is? No, I wanted you to kind of explain that. Okay, so... I can kind of, I could so maybe let's, make let's something talk about, up. But. Let's talk about MIG welding. Okay, so MIG welding is called dip arc welding. There's other words for it, too. Sure. Gmall, whatever the fuck. So <clears throat> dip arc welding is this. The electrode approaches the puddle, touches the puddle, it vaporizes into a molten form, it attributes to the puddle. Okay. That's dip arc. Okay. Spray arc, it just gets really close and it fucking vaporizes and it sprays all over the fucking material while like totally obliterating the sub fucking structure of the metal and it turns into this molten puddle and everything becomes homogenous. It's crazy as fuck, it'll burn the shit out of you, it's hot, it's scary, 
it's not fun to sounds do. like a violent weld it is a very violent weld what does that machine look like it's it, a mig welder okay That's it. it's just a different type of mig welder basically okay ish high frequency obviously yeah all lots kinds of, of crazy shit going on so we actually worked with the company that developed a new type of spiral core wound wire so think about it mig wire you look at it and it's like oh it's just a solid piece of wire no on a microscopic level this shit had like gas infused spiral wound core down the middle of a solid fucking shaft that was then spooled and we would use it to weld hermetically liquid type for those that don't understand what that is weld these shelters because they're underground so you have water pressure groundwater all those kind of things you have to worry about it buoyancy within the ground you know freaking rain stuff floats things out of the ground that have air inside them and then um we we would have to weld five sixteenths plate to half inch plate with a dual instance single pass so we have one trigger that operates two welders on two sides of one plate I pull the trigger first, and one second later, your trigger operates. So are you doing this in an ambidextrous fashion, or you have two welders? No, two there's a welders. guy on the outside, of the, uh, outside oh, of the container. Okay. I'm on the inside of the container. <laughs> oh, Christ. And what happens is I pull my trigger, mm -hmm. and the weld occurs, and on the outside, you see the heat witness of my right. weld, and then your weld begins just after mine by one second. So you're trailing my preheated base metal that I've welded on one side, and you're welding at the same rate and speed that I am down the plate. We've got to learn to follow each other so that we create this amazing homogenized, just total liquid-type freaking weld on both sides because you don't need it to leak. And that's some fun process. So, I mean, I've done stuff like that, and then, you know, I can weld overhead just like anybody's fucking business of any process, but I'm, I love welding. It's like organizing molten petals of fucking magic. <laughs> it's, it's a good way to put welding it. is one of my favorite things to do. I find it. Um, I, I wished I had the time to do it. Like I used to have the time to do it, but I always found that that was a peaceful place for me because I could count and counting for me, just simply just starting at one and, and moving up, just counting calms me. I don't know why, it's, you know, but, you know, just because it's one after another, right? It's like you said, it, there's some absolution to numbers and they're infinite at the same time. So it 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 allowed me to kind of keep my, because I'm not a talented, uh, I'm not like, I wasn't taught through welding school. I went and got a job at Watson yeah. Engineering because they would teach you how to TIG weld and I wanted to learn how to TIG weld. And so they taught you the basics and then they made you work in the production facility making all the headers for uh, the Ford SVO program, and then you would cycle out of that back. If you were good, once you got good, they would you would cycle out of that, and you could be a fabricator for them. So I'd, I'd mentioned this once before, and I can't remember where. So I um, I was young. Mini trucks were a thing. Sure. Full-size trucks. My jam. Right. Um, had a guy wanted me to help him on work on his truck or something. I was like, yeah, that sounds cool. And he's like, we're going to bag it. And I'm like, yeah, how do we do that? And I'm like, I don't know. I think we need a torch. And we're going to buy some plate. And we're going to cut it. We need to rent a stick welder. And we do all this shit. And we're like, this is fucking bullshit. I was like, oh, we need a MIG welder? What's that? Oh, it takes gas? Okay. Oh, what's a plasma cutter? Fuck, that does that? That's sick as fuck. Yeah, that's a cool tool. Yeah, and I mean, I own like a really 
I got a great handheld one, and I've got this amazing like thirty something thousand dollars CNC plasma table with like rotary axis and shit. So, no, nothing. Not sure, at all. Yeah, not right. at all. Not at all. <laughs> so, like, literally, the first truck I ever bagged uh, was done with a torch and a stick welder, and it was amazing. Actually, it held up for a long time. But the second truck I ever bagged was with an angle grinder and a MIG welder in my garage, and was in mini truck and street trucks tailgate sport truck fucking all at the same time it's when i met mike alexander one of my best friends um known him for 20 plus years now so i needed that mig welder it was a thing right i didn't know where to buy one i didn't even know i didn't even know what welding supply was at yeah that because point. you couldn't google things no, 20 years ago no there was no real internet there was that beep fucking internet you know that's yeah all you take got. 20 minutes like, to download i want to jack picture. off and fucking it was like i get like two <laughs> pumps in and be like ah, i'll come back fucking an hour from now right yeah so <laughs> that, i mean that's the truth right <laughs> like this is almost good yeah so um hopes and dreams hope and dreams <laughs> so i um i didn't know I, fuck i didn't know where to buy a welder i didn't know what welding supply i didn't know there was a thing called welding supply sure so um I mean, I knew that I could go to, like, I was an electrician at the time. So it was like, I knew I could go to an equipment rental place and I could rent a welder. Right. But I didn't know shit else about it. And it was like Harbor Freight. Oh, fuck. Harbor Freight has welders? Oh, shit. So I'm in um, an un, uh, undisclosed location within Texas <clears throat> looking at a Harbor Freight welder. Right. And... I, um, I'm staring at it and I'm like, okay, this one takes gas and it's 220. I was like, yeah, I can wire that. I'm an electrician fucking plug. No big deal. Um, I gotta get a bottle. Where'd I get a bottle from? Like, I don't even understand this shit. Right. I'm like, but like, I'm just in my head over and over and I'm staring at this shit and this guy walks away. He's like, man, you need any help? And I was like, no, man, that's good. I'm good, man. And he like walks away and he's like a little younger than me. I'm like 20 something. Fuck. I'm not even 20 at that time. I don't think regardless early he walks back 10 minutes later he's like man do you do you need help with anything like it just looks like you're really trying to figure something out and i was like man you know i think i i think i need a welder that takes gas and it's like I, a mix like that's what i need because it's like way more efficient than the shit that i used last time and i think that's what i need to do what it is i'm getting ready to do with that like i didn't know what the fuck that was i just knew i wanted to make shit right i want to bag trucks and be a badass mini trucking motherfucker <laughs> whatever watch me with my fucking you know 16 inch wheels and stock whatever anyway um he goes i mean do you need a welder and i was like i mean yeah i do but i really man i, I really can't afford one i'm just trying to figure out what i need and then like he comes back two minutes later he's like man do you need a welder and i looked at him i said yeah I said you got a hundred bucks Fuck yeah, I do. I said, what are you saying? He's like, I got a welder for a hundred bucks. He says, what are you driving? So I told him what I was driving and I walked outside and the motherfucker pulls a ticket and pulls the welder off the shelf and walks outside with it into the parking lot. And he comes up to the truck and I'm sitting there going, fuck dude, I don't even have 20 bucks. Not even 20 bucks. And he like rolls it out, freaking sticks it in the back of the truck He's like, yeah, man, that's fucking great, man. I'm like, cool, man. I go to get in the cab and leave, and he's like standing by the window. He's like, hey, man, I, need, I get that 100 bucks. I was like, man, you can go fuck yourself. So what are you going to do? Go in and tell your boss you stole me a welder? 
<laughs> and I fucking left. You deboed his fucking and stolen I fucking welder. Left, dude. <laughs> and I was like, I mean, what the fuck are you gonna do? Like, <laughs> call the cops on me? Oh fuck my you. god, dude, that is great. So. <clears throat> I feel terrible in an instance, but at the same time, it's like right now, I swear to God, right now, if I could find the dude that stole that welder from me and I ended up with it in my fucking truck, I would do anything to change that dude's life into the most amazing story that was ever told because I have had more opportunity and done more cool shit because I learned how to weld and I did Using that welder. Dude, it changed my fucking entire life. And that dude gave me that opportunity. And I fucked him over. <laughs> so anyway. With a $600 MIG welder, I started what it was that I was doing. And I learned that like that was kind of a piece of shit. It worked really great. I mean, I built a bunch of trucks with it. But then it was like, it broke down. Isn't it funny how you learn to use shitty tools and do good work with them? It makes you a better... It, it makes you be able to work with yeah, great shit. Yeah. Like, that's what I'm saying. Like, that's the, the hardest lesson to teach somebody who's young. You know, they come out of school, like, say they come out of, like, MMI, because this is the thing that I've dealt with the most. Especially they come out of MMI, too, yeah. Right? yeah. They come out of MMI, and they go on the Snap-on truck, and they buy that package where they get, like, 50% off their Snap-on tools, and they get $10,000 worth of tools for 5000 bucks, And then they pay $8,500 for the $5,000 worth of tools. And, and they think that's it. Like, do you know what I'm saying when they say yeah. that's it? Like, they want to go to work. They, they they want they want to go to work, but they want... I always attribute everything to, like... I look at everything like a video game. And I'm not even a video gamer, but I look at it as uh, people leveling up, yeah. right? So they level up. And there's cheat codes in a video game. And that's where I've my video came in now. Left, right, left, right, A, B. Exactly. Yeah. And so everybody wants the cheat code. It's like you've... You've got to play the game first. You give a kid that puts the time in on a video game, the cheat code, after he's put in all the time, and he levels up much faster, and he understands the cheat code. You understand what I'm saying? So your cheat code was buying a nice welder and replacing the shitty. So it's not really a cheat code. You just leveled up. You know what I'm saying? Yep, 100%. So I, I so second secondary conversation there, I actually received a note from Snap-on last year that said that I owed them the more money no more money i framed it <laughs> said that my balance was zero and i mean i bought a couple years back brand new freaking toolbox and all kinds of shit and just for the first time since i was like 19 43 don't owe, I don't owe snap, snap on, on fucking, fucking dime, dime. <laughs> i i owe i owe the truck guy probably a couple hundred bucks but i try to keep it down but i'm always buying tools yeah you know, we just did... Um, I'm done buying tools. Those guys come by and they're like, do you need anything? I'm like, I buy equipment. I don't need fucking tools. I only buy equipment now. I'm a tool whore. I, you know, but there's there, there's equipment that I want too. Like, and I don't even know... I don't have the time to do it. You know what I mean? Like, uh, I do so much with this and with running a business that has employees. I don't get to do... En enough with something to where I can I'm trying to create a little bit of distance from what I have to do and what I want to do so that I can do more of what I want to do if that makes any sense 100% understand that yeah so you, you know I mean you've got to do you, you've got to fire on all cylinders that's one thing that people don't understand is like I hire almost everybody that I've hired has one thing in common and it's they want to have their own bike shop which 
Man, I wanted to have my own bike shop. That's good, because I tell you what, you want somebody that works for you that is so ambitious that they want to fucking learn everything and grow to a point where they're like, fuck you, I'm out, politely. Yes, but I've also got a guy, the best mechanic I've ever had work for me is like, he came, it took me a year of courting him to come to work for us, and he's now, he's like, I don't ever want my own bike shop. I just want to, I'm happy here. You know, we we pay him. Take care of his ass. Yeah, we take yeah. care of him. Like, uh, we he's bought family. him. He is, yeah. and we bought him. Like he, uh, he's a good dad. You know, he takes care of his kids. He works his ass off. About four months into his tenure with us, he had to sell his motorcycle to because he started a business. Because all of the people that work for us start their business. Well, so he didn't have a motorcycle for uh, about a year. Well, this spring we we bought him. Uh, we bought him a Sportster. Uh, twelve hundred esque. He's a he's a, he's a wheelie guy. He likes to do wheelies and stunt and stuff. And he was previously on a sport bike. And I'm like, I got to get you on a Harley. So we bought him a Harley, and it was cool. It's um, I have a friend who can buy from any auction, and we found one in Texas and had it had it brought over. And then my buddy rode it up, and uh, he's a big giant guy on a Sportster. And Shannon's like. What in the hell are you doing on this Sportster? You look like a monkey fucking a football. And he's like, well, I just bought it. I need you to take it down the road. Tell me if everything, you know if everything's good with it or whatever. And so Shannon ran it down the road and came back. And I'm like, what do you think? You like it? And he's like, yeah, man, this thing's really cool. I'm like, cool. It's yours. He's like, what? So we do that, and That's you know, awesome. we make we we make sure that he makes as much money as he possibly can, and in. We keep him happy. You'll right? keep him because of that. Yeah, that's that's what we want. Take care of your people, and they will stay. I want to pay people life. enough money and treat them well enough to where they just it becomes a non-issue. They're not looking for a job. They're not looking to. Their buckets full, right? I think there's two kinds of human yep. beings. There's faucets and drains. Yep. I so understand it, man. You know, and so do you work by yourself primarily? I am by myself. Yeah, hundred. I am by myself. I work for myself by myself. I don't have any employees or any of that kind of stuff. And I mean, I do. Do you work. collaborate? I do a lot of collaboration. So that's that's way more important for me than having employees because the thing is, is like, let's just say that you and I collaborate on something. Sure. That's way better than me working with an employee because you have a great amount of skill group that you have from your heritage in the industry and the knowledge that you have based on your experiences. I'm an idiot and I've done a bunch of crazy shit. And so I've got a bunch of weird experiences myself. When we take those two things and we put them together, magic fucking happens. I feel like you are a professional problem solver. That is my job. Actually, but I also my, my job like... title is chief imagineer. It's on my emails. And often I get asked, where did you go to engineering school at? And I was like, no, I'm an imagineer. That is a Disney reference. Yeah. Yeah. yeah they, that's Big what fucking they call deal it. for me. Yeah. And they, well, so you're, you're also a problem creator. And not a, <laughs> but not a bad problem. Like you come to people with, you find problems. I, I fucking love so to find you, deficiency. So, in so yeah, so you're finding it. a deficiency, mm-hmm. and you're coming to like, hey, we have a problem. I feel like you're the guy that comes in the boardroom like, hey, we have a problem. No, and I never use that word actually, <laughs> because I think it's way more important when you walk into a group and you're going to talk to them about something that you want to try to champion. So the last thing you want to do is create some kind of uh, sense of negative connotation. Uh, negative connotation. Toward, yeah. yeah. So what you say instead is like, I have a challenge and I know that this is the group that can solve it. Because when you walk like into a that. room and then you say that, that group goes, yeah, yeah, we are. Yeah, we are. We believe that you believe in us. Yeah, that's and if, cool. And if you say, hey, fuckers, we have a problem. They all tuck their tails between their legs and they say, you know what? Fuck, I don't even, I'm not even, I'm going to block you out. They don't want to listen. They yeah. don't know what's going on. Which one you need? 
you go. Um, and I, I think that's important. I, I learned the we pronoun um, when I worked for, uh, I don't know if you ever heard of Livernoy Motorsports. They're in, they're in Michigan. They, uh, they did some Pro 5.0 stuff. Um, he was a Pro 5.0 champion, a guy named Danny Millen. He was, his mom owned the company. But I went to go work for them in 2000, and I hadn't ever had anybody sit me down and say, hey, I had I had been a car salesman for shit five years six years so everything was me like you didn't do this you need to do this you didn't achieve this we need you you know and so uh, it got to the point to where I was uh, like uh, just using the I pronoun a lot and so when we started working on projects I would say oh I'm gonna do this I need to do that and she was like wait. You need to, you need to learn how to say we. Like we are going to be successful together. We are going to fail together if that's what we if that's if that's what happens. But so I just I say we all the time, and I find that it it makes people feel like you're not blaming them. One of the most incredible things about using the word we and making an inclusive group and talking about the group, not yourself or that person. Right. One of the most incredible things about that is is that. There's a sense of community and, and like group responsibility. Sure. And so you're either absorbing responsibility or delegating responsibility when you do that. And so it creates um, a structured value in somebody's uh, response to how it is that you're trying to either involve them in something or create a solution for something that involves them. And they're more willing to work with you to resolve that situation or uh, create a solution based on the fact that they feel obligated and responsible as a group. When you isolate people, they feel like they're being battered and, and yeah. torn down and kicked to the curb and being held accountable for shit and that you're walking away from them and that you aren't on their team. And so they feel alone. So when you can make it sound like it's a sense of uh, team accomplishment te and teamwork, then people will ultimately always do double what you expect out of them. I find that um, because I use the we pronoun on positive things and I pay my employees... Uh, they're subcontractors, but pay my people more than anybody else will pay them to do what they're doing in our market, that they want to try to please please me. It sounds weird to say that, but they, they like I'm gone right now for four days, right? Mm -hmm. And so my daughter's running the counter. Um, she runs, she's learning to run the entire operation at 21. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's something that I wish somebody would have, sat me down and said hey you can do this like you're it's going to be hard there's gonna be lots of mistakes but you can do this and so she's trying to make sure that she mitigates as much as she can coming towards me while i'm gone and when i come back that everything was handled so that she you know she she builds trust it's a it's a it's a two-way street too right mm -hmm. like i i have to give her enough latitude to to make some mistakes and that's what i've told her before i'm like look you've got to learn to make some mistakes you've got to be you know daring enough <clears throat> to try some things and i have to be daring enough to let you do that and leave you alone and not micromanage you to death right so you've you've said some some really intelligent things ab ab about that i find that you're extremely articulate and that you understand that space it's interesting that somebody that works by themselves because normally people that work by themselves are introverts and don't want to collaborate and where I feel that from having a conversation with you that your collaborations are something that you have, you place a lot of value in. Mm -hmm. 
you place a lot of value in self-worth and your abilities and you protect those abilities. I can tell that, um, you know, you're not willing to let somebody take something away from you. However, you're willing to give all of the, you have to, to something that you believe in. A hundred percent of the time, man, as a matter of fact, like I arrived in, um, 10 mile, let's so down, we call it 10 mile. I don't even know it's a city. We're an hour from here. A friend okay. of mine, <laughs> uh, Tim and Angie Dixon, amazing people. That's a gas X chop shop and gas. Oh yeah. I saw them out yeah. there. Yeah. So, um, incredible people. And, um, the first day that I was here because I was driving and working, doing miraculous things for clients before I left, I had a bunch of work for Samsung and Ariat that I had to do before I came here. Um, I had all these phone calls that I neglected and all these messages and all these things for like three days. And so I literally sat in her dining room for a whole day doing nothing but working on collaborative details between people that I directly or indirectly or had nothing to do with other people because the people I do work with, I see the value in what they're doing and I understand their quality and what it is they dedicate their craft to and how that works out. And I want to see them succeed because they're succeeding and they work with me, then we do greater shit. If they can do greater shit together, we can do greater stuff together. And it's like, how do you need to be fed? Because I want the people around me to be so fulfilled that they are, they feel negligent in the relationship. I don't like do that intently. No, I know what you mean. I would um, rather, I would much rather somebody feel like, fuck, what do I not doing for him? Because I give so much, not because I want that, because I never want somebody to do the opposite. It's not because I want something. It's because I never want the opposite. I never want somebody to go, this motherfucker, and then say my name. So you then, it's one of the things that I've strived to do in this industry over the, and I'm just going to be a little self-deprecating here that, and this podcast isn't about me, but this is a good time to talk about this, is like, I'm not innovative. I know that. I'm a fan. And that's, I'm enthusiastic. I really like Boosted Brad's mids. I really like Jesse's CFL frame. I really like Curtis Hoffman's wheels. I love pretty much everything that Paul at Bare Knuckle makes. And, and, you know, Paul and I have been friends for, for a long, long time. We love each other. We're good friends. We cannot talk to each other for a year and still be good friends, right? But I like to play to the back of the room. So, you know, we lost uh, a, somebody that is a good example of that yesterday. And Skeeter Todd, God, I can't believe that you know, shit, man. Yeah. but he wasn't somebody, he, he wasn't a famous guy, but everybody in the industry yeah, knows everybody him. Knew him. So he played to the back of the room. He was a guy that helped you fix what you were trying to do. Yeah. Gave, he was free with his information. And when you talk to him about something, he gave you a lot of time. Arlen Ness is somebody that um, will always stand out to me that when in 2004, Six. He was the he and Corey were the the invited bike builders for the celebrity bike builders for the show at Birch Run, Michigan. And I will tell you that they were there for three days because it was a Friday, Saturday, Sunday event. Corey and his father were there for three days. Arlen went to every single booth and talked to people. He spent time at my booth and asked me questions about my bike and asked me, you know, how did you do this? Why did you do that? What you know. What was your what was your motivation for? He made you feel like you were on the same level as him, and that's something that I'm I'm thankful for because and I learned from that that 
he didn't treat anybody any differently than he had hoped somebody would treat him at that same point in time. You know, Arlen is a big inspiration for me before I was ever involved in motorcycles. I really appreciate how he operated as um, a family man, Mm -hmm. as a businessman, Mm -hmm. as an innovator, as somebody who had desire and creativity, who was polite and um, very humble. Right. And I was a super, super, like, gutted. I've I've only, huge, I've only been in the industry since 2013. Very fortunate to have worked with the family to um, use their parts on a couple of our really creative projects. I uh, appreciate the support of Corey, Zach, and Arlen in order to do those things. I um, appreciate the relationship that I have with Corey and Zach. And I remember about a year before Arlen passed, <coughs> uh, Robert Pandya reached out and asked me to provide a quote of what I thought needed to be contributed to an article. And I was like, well, why are you asking me? And I think that there was some connective tissue there that allowed me to be somebody that could speak about it. And I felt incredibly honored to publish an article in Hot Bike Magazine that he had Rick Fairless, who's also a very close friend of mine. He was a Dallas guy. I mean, he's yeah. in Dallas, so it's right. easy. But I mean, we had Rick Fairless, we had Dave Perowitz, we had myself and like two other people that were a part of these quotes about Arlen and what he meant to us in the industry. And I, I was very blessed to be a part of that article that honored his legacy before he passed Sure. in Hot Bike Magazine. And I, I still look at what he does and did. I said what, what he did um, and what that family means to the industry. I think it's extremely valuable. And I, I think that there's a part of me, like, I mean, if I have any superstars and I were to, like, say, like, strive towards it, it's like Ireland's the dude. Yeah, he you know. definitely, um, so I don't know if you know this or not, but they, they just signed on with us as a major sponsor I for do. the podcast. Absolutely. And I'm, I really, really put a lot of work into getting that. And I didn't do that for any other reason other than I felt that um, I, that was that's how I can show my appreciation. I mean, well, aside from being you, a dealer. You're a well. legacy guy. I mean, your father's yeah. trophy with the wheels of steel show all that stuff like i understand you're a legacy guy yeah i, you I believe in legacy you believe uh, in honoring legacy and all those kind of things i think it's beautiful what you're doing with the trophy that you well, know that carries rick's thank name you. on it yeah. and stuff like that that's amazing and i think that like your respect for them and the industry has to do with legacy and why you want to represent yourself in association with them well i res- respect i have a lot them. of respect for the industry so a guy like your so you you've done so many innovative things in such a short period of time based on the fact of enthusiasm stick-to-itiveness um you're you're now um you're now somebody that's i mean you i don't think people understand how hard it is to to quit this like even i you know i i don't get out I, i've ridden more in the last two days than i've had an opportunity to ride in a single day in years Right, because I've been so focused on my business, and based on the fact that we've made a few decisions in our shop that allow me to uh, peel off and do some of these things, right? But I'm not. I've never invented anything. Uh, I've never. I'm just. I'm a fan. I enjoy. I enjoy your work. I enjoy Cody's work. I enjoy Jesse's work. And there's lots of. And Cody's a good example of somebody that is uh, 
well known in the industry, but isn't really doesn't have, I mean, he's not, he doesn't have a shop right now. You know, he doesn't, he's just, he's extremely talented in what he does. How do you articulate, um, I mean, you created arguably one of the most effective ways to do what you did. Like, let's just you look at the short neck kit and all the work. And if somebody has never seen a set of misfit trees there, I mean, you, there's a little part that's a teardrop and it's a nut that's shaped like a teardrop and it's got an M on it and you don't see it when the bike's put together. You know I mean, there's, there's detailed pieces that well, went into some of that and stuff. You, and you realize right. the reason why that nut is made the way that way. Cause I'm like super nerd about that shit. That's my favorite part of the triple trees. And I'll always make my trees the same way because of this, uh, that particular aspect. So the tolerance on the nut to the socket <clears throat> is um, 50,000 short of the depth of the top tree. Okay. So it'll never shoulder. Okay. The stem has also got an additional 50,000 clearance on the inside bore of the nut, so it'll be 100,000 technically away from its ultimate destiny. The bore tolerance between the shoulder of the nut and it to the socket is 3,000, which is pretty freaking tight. Right. So the nut's negative 3,000. The facet that is the teardrop yep. is 15,000 shy of the actual bore that it sits in. The teardrop is only 187,000 thick, so 316s to people that don't know decimals. It sits flush with the top of the triple tree. Right. And that's so that if you have a customer's bike who has an incredible paint job, you need to adjust the bearing tension on those triple trees. You undo set screw at the back of the stem. Yep which is not necessary, but is a fail-safe type item. Sure. I broached a 3-8 Allen in the bottom of the stem. You loosen the lower clamp. and Road glide, street glide, you should also loosen the lower gauge pod bolt or fairing mount, whatever it is, just so the lower tree can move around a little bit. That's just two bolts that touch paint. That's it. And then you adjust the bearing tension. And you clamp all that shit back down, and you never take a headlight out. You never undo a gauge pod. You don't have to charge never, customer two hours for, for labor. Five minutes. And you do not have to touch paint because you do not want to pay for a paint job. If you take part of some of that apart and something gets scratched and fucked up, because I think that there's a great benefit to having that nut trapped in the top tree with a lateral thrust that allows you to actually torque it. Sure without having to put a second tool on it. So it's a single tool operation the whole entire time. I think it's super important because I'm, I'm thinking about the consumer and the shop owner. And so we talked about the neck product. You said something about how it just looked like it was part of the motorcycle and all this fun stuff. And that was really important to me. So product design is very important to me when it comes to like what its appearance is. It's not just about functionality. It has to look like it belongs there. So if you look like one of our neck systems, and you look at the geometry and how it translates off the castings and then turns under the neck and becomes part of the motorcycle. You literally think it's part of the motorcycle. You can't look at it and go, that's an add-on part. You look at it and say, that's part of the fucking motorcycle. And for me, uh, Dana Hallberg, great example. <clears throat> so Dana's, and we still got two bikes that we hadn't talked about that we're going to get back to at some point. So Dana Hallberg calls me at some point, Deadline Customs, out of uh, Minnesota. Okay. He goes, dude, you're killing me. <laughs> I said, what do you mean? He goes, man, I used to be able to install a neck and cut a neck for a customer and take me a whole day. I'd charge him 1500 bucks, et cetera, all this shit. And he's like, dude, I could do this neck in like fucking two and a half hours. And I said, yeah, you know why? Because here's the thing. 
labor disappears and the customer never sees it. Right. If you can displace the cost for labor and put that into parts, you can create a better appearance product or performing product for the consumer. And the end result is it's that the, the market it's, it's can a net see zero. it and it makes the overall project look better. So let's take away labor that's unnecessary, create a, a efficiency within that labor group that has to be performed, and let's take that money and displace it to something that makes it look more impactful. So, so let's two things I want to know then. The first, I'm going to ask the first, I'm going to ask the second question first. Um, what what happened to that company? I mean, without being, without talking out of school, here's arguably, they made the best product. They made the best product that, that I mean, Trask now manufactures their, their, uh, their exhaust under, we, under we their navel. We gave Trask the exhaust. I think there was some financial compensation necessary in order to make that a transition kind of thing. And I don't think he didn't want, I, I, I think he probably didn't want to quit making it too. Uh, it was popular. It, it makes good power. Uh, the nasty bastard exhaust makes great fucking power. Um, Dylan, John, Hoey, one of our product developers and myself worked on collaborating on building that exhaust. He was, um, he was a graphic artist and I worked for us as an office assistant, those kind of things. And did some administrative kind of stuff. He was, uh, he's a really smart guy. Mm-hmm. Um, he's been around the industry quite a while as well. That exhaust, I think at one point we we're selling like 50 units a month, you know, which is a two to one exhaust at an independent company. That's significant. I mean, we're not D and D we're not rusty, you know? Yeah. Right. So that's a that's a good hit for us. Um, it worked. It fit. Yep. It did what it was supposed to do, and, and it I mean, was good know, looking. Nick's got great capability too. There were some deficiencies in manufacturing that we we all came to acknowledge and resolved over a period of time. You know, bolts versus rivets on the tips, and whether it should be like we end up aluminum rivets for crying out loud for some fucking reason. At a period of time, I was like that should be stainless and they'll never fall sure. out. And why do you offer an exhaust tip for purchase? Because uh, they fall the fuck off. You know, so we figured all that stuff out. You work through those kind of things with the sure. product. And you learn. Um, you know, so as far as the company is, is concerned, it was uh, an amazing fucking ride. I got to do more rock star fucking shit than anybody I personally know. Really? And I know some people have done some pretty rock star fucking shit. Not, I mean, aside from sure. the rock stars. Yeah, from rock star, yeah. Because <laughs> I, know, I know a few yeah, of those, Yeah, we could too. talk to X, and I'm sure he's done some rock star oh, shit. Oh, yeah, yeah, 100%. <laughs> X is one of those. And, I mean, like, I'm familiar and got to associate a little bit with Jim Root. And yeah, he's a good dude. Yeah, he's a friend of mine. solid as yeah, fuck, he's man. a very good friend of mine. Um, so it's one of those things where we built a Medal of Honor charity bike for Rockstar Energy uh, Tours, you know, John Oaks. Yeah. Uh, John and I are... Good friends, actually, I need to call him about the packaging and the hot sauce that they're supposed to put out. It's supposed <laughs> to create the packaging for them for that shit, for him and Jeff and Dump Truck, and I forget who the fourth party is. Um, but um, we built a bike for Rockstar Energy Medal of Honor Tour that was, had a Vinge Sevenfold, Slipknot, and freaking corn sign that shit. Like, how fucking cool is that? That's very cool. I got to stand on stage by myself. No other people in the industry... No other spectators, music industry only, on stage, bumping elbows with freaking everybody from Corn while they did a full live theatrical fucking sound check the day before the show in San Gabriel fucking amphitheater in California when we debuted that bike. That's nice. The fucking coolest musical experience of my life. So <clears throat> we did all this great, amazing rock star ish shit. Right. 
you know, and uh, Jace likes to run his fucking mouth and said some shit about how little go, we didn't knew no fucking, uh, what was the Nuno Betancourt? No, what? No, no, we, no, never knew Nuno Betancourt. I mean, you know, more than words is you know, one of his better songs, but whatever. Right. <laughs> so, um, what was it? Um, Jace said he worked there for like three days or a day or something. I have something to say about that. Yeah. As much as I love Jace. <laughs> I won't go into details about it. No, but I'll hold him, I'll hold him I'll, personally I'll, accountable about that conversation. But the thing is, no, that, I, like, I think we, Jace is an artist, and you can't put him in a box. It's true, and that was our that was a yeah. conflict, and that's absolutely fucking true. That's I mean, that, there I was don't... there was a need for him. I was hoping to fill it. It didn't fit. He moved on. End and, of end of fucking story. Yeah. So the thing was that, um, and I love Jace. I think he's got a great, yeah. a, a great conflicting interpersonal conflict mind. Set it interest. makes him, but that's part of what makes part of his that's, charm. That's an artist, man. It's yeah, like it's you part fucking, of his charm. It's hard to be the same person all the time. So anyway, the company grew really fast, right? And it was because we had a lot of available financial support. The first year in new business, we had a fifty-three foot trailer with a half stack in the back, so we could put eight bikes on them you know, ground level lift system, right. full cabinet system up front, full audio system, heat and air, fucking 35 foot Freightliner coach, sleep six people, bought it for like $126,000 at a steal, old drag race trailer. Yeah. Motorcycle drag race trailer. Um, semis are a fucking money bucket. Don't buy one. It's <laughs> <laughs> like worse than a boat. <laughs> They're fucking terrible. Um, really neat shit. Um, did some great stuff. And the problem was, is that I generally feel, and I don't care at any point if Chris and I interact and he wants to conflict me and have discussion with me about this because I have some very personal issues with him in particular. The thing was, is that I was promised an opportunity to help grow a company that was on the ground level that was looking to go somewhere. And I was... 2,000 fucking percent in. As much sacrifice and time and relationship and everything else I could do to see it succeed, I knew that if I was going to own part of that, and that was the goal. Right. It was the agreement. If I was going to own part of that, I refused to have such amazing opportunity fail by not utilizing the financial input that was given to the company in order to develop the products, the community, the customer service, the responsibility from fabrication standpoint, the quality control of the product, all those things were absolutely fucking necessary. You cannot be handed a shit ton of money and not deliver because if you do, you're a piece of shit and you're selfish. And so I ran with it so hard personally that as we grew, people within the industry thought that I was the owner of the company because of my appearance, the way I spoke about it, the way I discussed it. And I never said me, me, me. It was, it was like we, us, 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 we, we, yeah. we. That's a big deal for me. Yeah. Big, big fucking deal. Look at what we're doing. We love you guys. Blah, blah, blah. Egos get in people's fucking way. There's frustrations, all kinds of shit. And I noticed that Chris had such a fucking ego trip problem with the fact that I would have particular interest or attention that he couldn't gain. Because he wasn't genuine. He's a selfish, narcissistic, piece-of-shit motherfucker and can suck my dick. On record. Yep. So, 
And I, I wish him the best. Like, I want him to live his best fucking life. Don't get me wrong. I just never want to associate with him again. So he began to find ways to make himself, quote unquote, cooler than the rest of the crowd. Gotcha. And so as the need to be cooler became necessary for him to feed his fucking ego, he began to take away from what I felt was the mission statement of the company and focus more attention on himself, which ultimately caused chaos between the other two financial providers for the business. And as Jay stated, must be nice to have people that are in your fucking company to just like throw money at it, just want to pay you to be around it. No. One of our principal owners is a very wealthy and successful businessman who loves fucking motorcycles and the community. He owns Comtech Communications. He has been responsible for some incredible technology across the fucking world that allow you to be on cell phones, on airplanes, and all kinds of shit. The dude is very, very smart and an incredible businessman. However, the conflict was between Chris and them. The deficiency became between them. Their responsibility to the company financially decreased by Chris's inability to focus, organize, manage, and deliver. And because that became a selfish ploy for him to manipulate the company into something that became the Chris and fucking Kelly show. If you go back and look at Misfit Industries, not Misfit Industries LLC, Misfit Industries Worldwide, but Misfit Industries Instagram. Go look at the very beginning of that shit. Scroll all the way back to its origin. And then dig your way through it from beginning to end. And you'll find out there's a point where it went from team everybody's fucking cool to look at Chris and Kelly. When that shit happened, ownership, not just Chris, ownership, the other two partners we had in Canada, began to have conflict. Because they saw that there was a lack of focus on what was really important. And there was restrictions put on purchasing, um, trips, expenses, all those kind of things that were necessary in order to, you know, continue to create community and culture, all those kind of stuff, which is very, very important. I mean, I, I dare say there was a period of time where our culture was bigger than almost any other quote unquote, big wheel bagger group of persons oh, within the industry. Yeah, yeah, there was, I mean, we went through, uh, an 08 to, to the big wheel bagger thing, 13, 12, <laughs> that area. That era, that four years was a very lean four years, a very, mm -hmm. um, I can't even begin to tell you, it was it was very evident being in a quote-unquote, you know, repair your basic bike shop that you had to, you were going to be working on a lot of the same motorcycles and not spending a lot of money on them mm -hmm. for, for quite a bit. I mean, there's a few dudes putting cams and stuff, but the crate motor thing was done. Yep. The Baker drivetrain thing was, you know, I mean... There was a point in time where everything got a baker and you couldn't sell one. And, the, and you know, and, and I know them, I know Bert and Lisa because I worked for They're them. They're fucking awesome people. Yeah, and so I watched them go through it. You know, we all went through it. And so, you know, as much as people can clown on, and I've clowned on big wheel baggers too, it saved our industry for, it made our industry last for another 10 years it pretty easily. pushed into an envelope of availability that became what we are today. Yeah, it is. 100%. It, we, yeah, it absolutely set us on our, that, you know, ratcheted things up to where we could start making money again. Um, I said I wanted to ask you the second question first, because the first question I want to ask you is, you have all these skills and you have these desire. I don't know if you have the desire anymore, but... Always desire. Why isn't there a line of of moosecraft parts that are that are that fit 
you know, all these, you know what I mean? There, you know where I'm going with that. I, there, you know, I, there would, is. I would feel that there would be, there is. Uh, it's in your head or. Oh no, I have a lot of shit happening right now. <laughs> okay. It's just not on the shelves. It's not in the distributors. It's not in the, yeah, because so. you guys did it without any distributors too. At the very end, Misfit got picked up by drag. Yeah. And that was a mistake. Well, it was probably the final coffin in the name or final nail in the coffin. You, you can't make any money selling through drag. No, you can't. Not not to be critical of drag. I, I love uh, them as a company. I think they're great as a distributor. Sure. When it comes to profitability as a company as a, or an individual, as a, you make so little margin on your parts. And they dictate to you how many you how many SKUs you're going to have. Yes. They turn the SKUs over. And, I, and I, I love a, a great handful of people who are very responsible for how that operates within their industry and their facility. I mean, I, I have connections with people that are very important within drag that I highly respect and revere for what they do for that part of the industry. So yeah, Tom Motzko is, is, Tom is, you know, I mean, the guy, he is, he's the arbiter. He's the one that's driving. Tom is the reason why our parts were picked up 100%. Yeah. And, and for me now, when I say our parts, yeah, I developed 95% of the fucking parts for that business. Sure. I, I would imagine. It, yeah. And for me, from a heritage legacy standpoint, I look at that and I say, again, that's some rock star fucking shit. Yeah, but so I, from, I'm from very that, fortunate from, to have that have happened in my life. Yeah, but looking at through looking at those through those optics, um, you know, it's kind of cool when you go to swap meet and you find an old. I mean, it doesn't really happen very much anymore. But you can find an old Arlen Ness part, or you can find an old mm -hmm. Harmon part, or you can find an old Dick Allen part, or you can find yeah. an old. A, uh, AAE part or something. Some of these businesses, like, I mean, uh, what is it? Custom Cycle Engineering has been around for f over 40 years. Yeah. And they, you know, they don't have, their catalog has gone from, from here to here to here to here to here to here. You know, uh, Pro One as, you know, has come back from the ashes of whatever was going on with them. And, but it's a shame. What I'm getting at is it's a shame that, so much of your work isn't being produced anymore and there's not a place to produce it underneath the auspices of what you created. So now you've got to create everything over again, right? A little is what bit. I'm saying. The thing is I mean, that I, I technically own the intellectual property that was all the products that I ever made for Misfit. Oh, good. That's it. Okay. Like, they're, they're non-patented products. There's no assignment to the company. They didn't say, Moose, here's a part, draw it this way. We need this specific part. They said, hey, man, we need fenders. Cool. What do you want? I don't know. 21 to 30. Cool. And then I took it upon myself as an independent contractor because they asked me to provide fenders to independently draw the art that created the unique part that was our fenders. They do not own the intellectual property that is that fender. They have the right to manufacture it because I allowed it. We okay. have a contract that allows them to manufacture it. The company doesn't exist anymore. There's a handful of parts that actually I started remanufacturing this year that I'm strategically in line Placing to put those it pieces. in place so that it works the correct way kind of thing. <laughs> because I think there's opportunity with velocity for a particular instance for a reason, and I'm trying not to put it in its incorrect form and place. Yeah, so not, not whore it out or pimp it out. Don't, don't, don't send a product just because. It's not okay. the way to do it. No, I, that's, a, that's, a, that's a thoughtful answer. Yeah. I mean, because there's a lot of, there's a lot of thoughtful people that, are in this business and there's a lot of people that um and i don't you know in for the in the sake of time this will be for a probably a podcast in december that you will you and i will do but we've talked a lot um away from this 
media with people in our industry about people coming in from the outside and infusing it with cash and then trying to remove that cash so quickly that it creates a vacuum in it and it in it that's why i asked you what happened with misfit because well, some people can come in it happened to cycle stop usa mm -hmm. we had a lot of cash mm -hmm. the investors got scared they sold it out from under me i ended up having to buy it back six months later from somebody completely different right so there's people who come into this and they think that it's just like a I guess we do a good job working in this industry to make it look fun and make it look easy somehow to somebody that is a pedestrian. And so they think they can just throw money at it and then take that money plus what they want to take back out of it. And if you're not here for the long haul, you're not going to be here for the long haul. So to that tune too, when it comes to products and money, et cetera, and all those things, I've had a handful of people offer me money to develop parts. Sure. I had somebody approach me last year, wanted to put a lot of money into a product line, um, millions of dollars into a product line. Pretty vast product. Some of them, they're potential ideas that needed to be flushed out. What is it you want to do? I'll fund it. You know, right? Oh, yeah. Those are. <sighs> That's a shit show. That um, is never going to work. Nope. And it, the thing is, it's not about the relationship. It's not about problem solving. It's not helping people in the industry. It's not about just like, how much money can I fucking make off you doing your work? And so I am um, funny that you use that phrase with, with that opportunity. I was a little ambitious to say this might work and investigated a little bit. I dedicated some time to it because I generally want to say, okay, if you're speaking to me this way, then there should be some reciprocal freaking. Yeah. Communication. I should at least give you the, yeah, the honor give of you the fucking time of day. Yeah. And, um, <clears throat> aside of needing and wanting to earn that money, I needed it to feel as if the relationship were something that I felt I, I back to freaking Arlen Ness, man. It's a heritage thing for me. Right. When I start, like when I started what I did with Misfit, I looked at it as a potential forever project. I said, I would beg that someday this be so climatic that I get looked back on and somebody says, man, 30 years ago, you guys did this that's what i'm getting at is that how do you pr protect and you've answered the you've answered that question but the the phrase that you said that really jumped out at me was what do you want to do i'll fund it is that's probably the scariest words that are ever uttered to a young entrepreneur it's because fuck. it feels it's, 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 it's like getting honey dicked it's nightmare like situation it's like meeting a hot chick at the bar that wants to go home with you right now it's like okay What's going on in her life that she wants to take somebody home that that she doesn't know? So I, I'll, I mean, our knowledge of each other is limited, but I'll let you know a little bit of something. So I've been responsible in the growth and the creation and the creative development of numerous multi-million dollar companies that I've been fucked out of because I'm so ambitious that I think that it's going to win. Right. Because I believe and I have faith and I love people and I want us all to succeed in all kinds of shit. Freaking massive fence in debt company, getting married, buying a house, all this shit, trying to supply money for my family. Hurricane Katrina hit, everything took a shit, money lost, business shut down, nothing. Nuclear, biological, chemical fallout shelters, building shit on fucking numerous TV shows on the background, freaking tens of millions of dollars being made. Nothing. Lies. Misfit. 
motherfucking lies. And I knew better. I knew better going in. But I said, you know what? I'm a real piece of shit if I don't try. Because they're willing to try. They're willing to put their money into it. As long as I know I didn't sell myself short and I didn't not do my job. Yeah, you can sleep with a I clear can go conscience. To bed yeah. And feel good about myself. And so I think that's super important. So you asked me earlier, you know, why aren't there parts that are yours? So three weeks ago, I bought a 2020 Lowrider S through uh, Paris Holly Davidson. Right. Uh, Cody uh, Chapman there owns a Yamaha Harley Honda dealership. Amazing guy. Uh, does some incredible events. Um, provided me the ability to purchase a bike from him and represent, you know, him as a brand and uh, do something for myself again. And uh, with that new Softail platform, I say new, mind you, we're like you know, four, four years, years in. into it. Yeah. <laughs> um, what, it feels but, new. But responsible intently is the four-year mark for me. So at this point now, what some people go, oh, I want to buy this brand new bike right now. No, I'm this way. This bike's been around four years. There's culture around this bike. There's communities built around this bike. There's communications within those communities and cultures around those bikes. People have desires and questions and intuitive freaking responses to what they do and do not want with those bikes. And you have a, a substantive art audience that already is riding these things and are going to agree with you when you find the inherent problems and the shortcomings in the chassis or the engine or the, the and development. They own them. And they understand what they want and they desire and all these things. They've complained and they bitch, <laughs> you know, whatever it is. And I've paid a lot of attention to that. And I've done a lot of research on purpose for the last three and a half, four years. Because I've generally felt like the day that they came out with those bikes that would be one of the most catapulting potential points of sale within the next 10 years. Because I felt like that it was a nimble enough bike. It's a versatile enough bike. It fixed some Dyna-related issues. Yeah. You know, we can all agree to that. And that... Um, so in 2014, I built two bikes for Geico for um, 75th Daytona. Are those the ones that are in they're in de destination right now uh, in the window? I don't know if they are. I mean, yeah. she, she should own them. I mean, she gave us the bikes. Yeah, they're so, there. I saw them when I was down there with my wife, okay. uh, Valentine's Day weekend. They're still in the window. So um, with those bikes, mm -hmm. my intention was to do a... It's a bagger. They're, they're police bikes when we got them. Road Kings. Was to do a rear body conversion system because I felt there needed to be a versatility in the bike. So I wanted people to be able to ride something that was sporty like a cafe, go full low rider like a soft tail, or operate it like a bagger. Right. And so I developed a rear conversion system that allowed you to replace your tail section so you could do all three. It also included battery that was rotated 90 degrees full size integrated electronic system where you can plug and play the tail end <laughs> and two different exhaust systems so that you could change the exhaust based on what style bike you had and then you could also have a mono shock in 2014 and applied for the patent on a mono shock converted touring harley davidson 2009 newer chassis it was denied because it was already awarded to Harley-Davidson three months earlier for the touring platform. So in 2014, I knew that Harley was going to go to a monoshock anything at some point because they already owned the patent on it. May have been a little bit before that, but it was really close to the exact same time. And they were like, nah, fuck, your guys are short. You're, you're slow. 
<laughs> and so I believe through some discussion with some people that I know that are close to some things in the industry, they have spoken about how it was supposed to hit the market this year for the touring platform. But it's definitely, I think, hitting us next year through the touring Harley-Davidson Monoshock bikes, which would be amazing. Yeah. But having back to the research thing, it was one of those things like it was, I was adamant about the fact that I had left Misfit two years ago. Um, I knew before I left Misfit that there was a plan for those bikes for myself and hopefully for the business I was a part of. And I was doing as much research ahead of time and following the trend following the attention, following the communication so that I could very, very accurately articulate necessities for that market. And so I've got 10 light items for the soft tails alone right now that are very specific to the soft tails. I have some crossover parts that work with those bikes, the touring platform, builders, choppers, all kinds of shit. Sure. OE replacement, you know. But I've got more than 60 SKUs that I'm working on producing my in-game result with the 60 standing SKUs is to be 365 days from now full market on them. But I have at least 10 SKUs that I want to be by the time I land in Lakeland for the soft tail based on the slow rider that I'm building now. Nice. Um, the the wheels is definitely one. Working with Jade. Yeah. You know, the wheels are, are super fun. Um, he'll probably hear this. Hopefully, um, probably not before I tell him, but I'm working <laughs> with Paul Lindahl to do the spindle uh, hubs, and then we're doing brakes that match and all kinds of fun stuff. I'm using his carriers in order to sell it as a package. We're going to offer that on the website. Um, but, yeah, no, parts is a big thing. I think that parts is very responsible for the market because uh, er, there's people that complain about Harley leaving this not fully developed motorcycle, but I think what's genius about it is that without selling themselves short, so Harley as a culture is, let's just bullshit some numbers. Harley's culture is 100 people. Okay. You have 10 businesses that go, man, your bikes suck. We just made all this cool shit for them. 10 companies made 10 parts for all these fucking bikes. There's 100 parts outstanding. Right. You have a culture of 100 people per person. There's 1,000 people who are spots. So now they just time 10 your fucking culture because you have aftermarket companies that have created culture themselves within their own businesses and their own markets. Okay, fair enough. reflect against their own fucking parts. They leave their bikes sold short so that other people will create an additional culture to their own existence. And there are teams. Yes. You know, you got guys that like uh, Hoffman's Baggers. You got guys that like, um, you know, San Diego Customs right. stuff, you know, so... And then there's retards that like dumb shit that I do that mean nothing <laughs> to the industry other than some like what the fuck were you thinking? But it's hard to it's it's hard to look at that bike and not see the the sheer amount of engineering and um, you know the thought that went into the art side of it, you know. And that's why that's why I wanted to ask you about where where does where does the convergence occur between math and art, and uh, that's probably a great place to that's a great place to wrap kind of wrap this off. up is yeah. that. So the convergence of math and art to somebody like you that is so, you're very into math, but you're not concrete sequential. Like talking to you, you're not somebody who's like has to, everything doesn't have to line up a certain way. Everything just has to add up to the same denominator. So how do you, where's, how it's, do you it's parse a, It's it a journey. It's like, I need to go from here to the other side of the great desert. Right. And there's a lot of paths you can take. 
and it's all about the attention that you utilize um, to create the solutions along that way. Like, you know, I need water, I need food, I need whatever the hell that sustains me in order to get me there. And part of those is motorcycles and parts and community and those kind of things. So, like, for me, that creative versus concrete development is that absolutes will be 100% sure to solve problems and then there's room for growth and interpretation along the way. And I do that not based on anybody's input. I do that based on, like, I sit there and I stare at something for freaking four and a half or six hours or ten hours. And then everybody's like, when are you going to start? And then it's like they disappear and they come back an hour later. I've already it's started. all done. Yeah. It's like, I've built it 20 times in my head. I just saved myself $1,000 in material by not fucking it up ten times. Right. You know? And then there's the moments that you just, like, make it ten times. <laughs> you just go, shit. But, I mean, I, I 3D print. I have a CNC plasma table. I draw in SolidWorks. I'm, te- you know, hoping to teach Cody some CAD work. He's doing yeah. some SolidWorks shit, you know, and all those kind of things. It's like I, I, and I, I love to educate people about those things because there's and like Brad today, I was talking to him about 3D printing and some stuff, and I'm like, how about you just buy a 3D printer and I help you do some things, and I could just send you files and you could print some shit in house. And he's like, I don't know how to use it. I'm like, no, fuck you, just turn it on. It prints parts. <laughs> Damn it, <laughs> you know. So it's like when he understands the space. Yeah, and and. I mean, I tell you what, as far as space is concerned and like what we do, I, I, I really respect what it is that you do with your podcast. You were real early Thanks, to man. the game and then you're like, oh, fuck, I guess I should get back that, uh, that space. And so like, I really respect and appreciate what it is that you do um, to contribute to our industry as far as like your show and, and what you're doing for the podcast and like how you're trying to utilize the, uh, that's a loud bike. Monster, loud bike out there. <laughs> what what you're doing to um, utilize the community within our industry in order to not only assist in its um, future influence and like what we're doing in order to maintain its its sustenance, like there's a maintenance necessity there. And um, I think without you doing this and people like you that are doing this, that we we really don't have the future that we hope we would have. And I, I, I love and respect what it is that you're doing in order to contribute to that. Well, I appreciate that. And that goes back to me saying that I, you know, what I'm trying to do is play to the back of the room so that everybody's needs are met, you know, and that we shine a light on people that maybe don't shine a light on themselves enough or that maybe the, and, and try to peel back the layers and let the pedestrians that, you know, that love motorcycles and ride motorcycles and attend these types of events that we're at now, but they're not in the industry, right? But to give give some optics to that and kind of in kind of you know create a convergence again that word that you know so they can kind of see what's what's behind what you do behind what i do so i appreciate you and i appreciate you taking time to sit down with me because i know it's it's hard to get it's hard to wrap your head around this space sometimes but oh, i've been listening to podcasts and doing this shit for like yeah six and I, or eight it's, years you know you try to get somebody to sit down and you're like they don't quite understand the space but i appreciate you doing this man no, and thank you for having me. Like, I, I appreciate the respect that you're giving me by offering me the opportunity to be a part of it. So, yeah, it's awesome. Well, it's awesome. And I'll, and, and, uh, I'll see you at you're one of our builders at CF Wheels of Steel, which I'm totally stoked about. Yeah, so. and I mean, I'll actually be able to finish my bike for that show. <laughs> awesome. Unfortunately, I have a lot of uh, really important parts that either keep things straight or make things move <laughs> that are uh, not at my shop currently for the current build. And then I have a, a personal failure uh, that will go undisclosed that's uh, going to cost me a little bit of money and time. And um, it's uh, not a, a, cl- a clear error on my part. I think it's more of a material deficiency and 
shit happens and you just kind of suck it up and say, you know yep. what, fuck, I'll fix that and we'll make it better. And then the funny thing is, is like, we're going to build this motor this way and now that motor is bigger and so I'm going to do this this way and that's better. And then all the parts that I'm coming out, the line items that go specific with this platform, instead of not being able to show up with the majority of them here, I'll get to show up with them, all of them to Lakeland, which is great. So it'll be a full product debut. Awesome. New website. I pray to God I can get done by then. <laughs> Um, it seems like a long ways away. I think like we're at like less than 60 days away. Yeah, I was just going to say, say it's like not that, trust me, it's, I see it like approaching like yeah. a, like 45 a... days is tomorrow. <laughs> yeah. Um, I totally understand that. And so it's, there's no rest whatsoever when it comes to that concept. There's definitely a lot to do in a short period of time. I and, think you'll um, get there. And, and I know that I will, um, a really close friend of mine that was an apprentice of mine and worked in my shop. Um, when I worked for somebody else, he swept my floors. He wanted to flat fender his Jeep. He was just like total, I want to hang out and be a friend. And like, right. I, I, I don't want anything from you for free, but I mean, can you, can you use some help <laughs> kind of thing? Neil Reimer, uh, one of my best friends, man, we believe the same thing. And we built SEMA cars and I do shit for Toyota and Lexus. It's got to be done in like 20 or 30 fucking days. There's people that will come to you in the middle of these projects and are like, well, what, what happens if you don't finish? You're like, that's not an option. What the fuck did you just say? Yeah. Take your negativity and fuck it off. <laughs> yeah, go away. <laughs> yeah, like, there's no such thing as not finished. I mean, occasionally it happens. Yeah. And, uh, there, it's been a rare occasion. Um, unfortunately, I feel like motorcycles has been more common than automotive. Like, honestly, I have, even though there's less to do, there's more to do. Yeah, there's and something problematic about that. Mm -hmm. I have definitely found myself working harder to create greater impact with less in a bike than I ever did with cars. I mean, fucking gut a whole car and build it out and deliver it for Toyota in a month. I'm trying to build a bike in freaking three weeks and I shit on myself a little bit. <laughs> you know, and I, I've done it a few times in great ways, I feel like, within reason. But we truly believe, and the people that I'm closest to in my business, we believe that failure is not an option. You absolutely have to deliver the product but there's also responsibility that if that product means that your legacy is to be carried by the product you deliver, then you shouldn't deliver a product that is nothing short of exactly what you expect people to re remember you by. And, and that's so what a legacy is yeah, too. And you should never, you should never cut short the expectancy of the audience versus yourself ever. You should always deliver hundred percent of everything you can, can contribute to a project. Those are good words. Yeah. Thanks man. I appreciate it. No, it's been great. I appreciate you. You have been listening to the Power Wheels Podcast with your host, Jason Coleman. Thank you for listening. <laughs>